Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my Dating Violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Today, we are honored to be speaking with Romana Fry. Thinking back through all of the interviews I've had so far, I really would be hard-pressed to find anyone who has done more to help people who are in distress because of domestic violence. I, I really honestly can't think of anybody who has done more different things. They haven't done more different things than she has. It's just unbelievable reading her bio. So I just want to welcome you, Ramana, to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you so much, Bill. It's an honor to be with you here today. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. I looked at your bio. I read it a couple of times, made a lot of notes. But let me just ask you, why did you pick this path? You know, why did you go down the domestic violence path? What got you going? I mean, was it some was something that happened to you or did you just pick that path or something that happened to somebody that you know of all areas? Why did you pick that one? Well, that's a really interesting place to dive in, Bill. I grew up in a household where there was coercive control. And I know you've talked about this quite often on your podcast. And quite often, it's the man who is coercively controlling the woman. But in this case, it was my mother who was the narcissist. And she was coercively controlling my father. So what that looked like is that she basically controlled every move he made from what he ate, what he wore, you know, they worked together. He was very, very rarely out of her sight. You know, as I grew older, he just became more and more quiet and depressed and really just a shadow of who he had been before. So imagine a young child growing up in this kind of a situation. And, of course, as children, we don't know anything different, so we think everybody's family is like this. That's true. Now, you can only imagine some of the ways that I was treated growing up. And when 
young children are in the position where their main caregiver parent is who they look to for love and affection, but is also the person who is emotionally or physically abusing them, quite often what happens is the young child will dissociate. So in this case, that meant that there was a part of me that was just continuing on to live in that household and make it through the day. And then there was another part of me that was kind of checked out because the emotional pain or the physical pain was just so deep and so horrendous that my system wasn't able to bear it. The other piece was my father, because of course he was being controlled by my mom, and so he couldn't come to my rescue at all. So basically, my mom was the abuser, my dad was the silent bystander, you know, there was a Ramana who was going through life, and then there was a Ramana who was checked out. So when I think back to my childhood, I really don't remember much at all. Mm. So that's going to be a thread through my whole life and career and relationships. That was the foundation. And throughout my life, I finally learned that this was not a healthy family. But of course, getting into my first relationships, as soon as things got in any way emotional or dysfunctional or violent, I would check out. And then that other part of me would just kind of make it through the relationship. So I never really realized that I was in an abusive relationship. Finally, in my 30s, we're going to talk about now the relationship that really introduced me to femicide. Again, I had a husband and we had a young child. Part of me was very fully involved in parenting and being a wife and running my business and doing all kinds of wonderful things. But the part that would have recognized that there was an acceleration of abuse, that just didn't ever really click in. So I did have an experience that I'll probably talk about a bit more where the abuse accelerated. And then at that point is when I realized that this is abuse, this is what's going on, I'm going to help myself. And then from that, I was able to broaden out and help other people. The When Dating Hurts podcast is supported by Cure Hydration. The purpose of the When Dating Hurts podcast is for us to achieve healthier relationships in life. The purpose of Cure is to help achieve healthier hydration routines. Dehydration is the leading cause of daytime fatigue. Even mild dehydration can cause muscle weakness and brain fog. I feel it when I'm playing pickleball for hours and water doesn't do enough. I was excited when I discovered Cure. It's an electrolyte packet that hydrates just as effectively as an IV drip. Cure packets are convenient and easy to use. Just mix them with water, then drink. Pretty perfect when you're on the go, or traveling, or really anytime you need a fast hydration boost. Cure helps your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. And Cure comes in a bunch of delicious flavors. Just mix Cure in 8 to 16 ounces of water and you're good to go. Try Cure soon and you'll feel the difference. Head to CureHydration.com and when you check out, add my discount code 
when dating hurts one, all one word, no spaces, when dating hurts one. And you'll get 20% off your order of Cure. Cure hydration with Cure. At no point in time did you kind of become your mother, on the other hand. Because some people go there. You know, they see an abusive father like some young guy. You know, he sees his father. He's on the receiving end of the abuse from his father. And then one day he realizes, well, look what my father does, but he's in control. I want to be in control. So he kind of then lets dad be the teacher. And then he takes that, uses it on other people in school. And eventually people he's supposed to be uh, in love with, you know, he then becomes this dominant character and that therefore the cycle of the abuser. But you stayed you the entire time, I guess then, right? I mean, you figured out how to, how to go into your kind of defensive mode when things got bad and you just would retract, you know, you'd kind of go into your shell, I guess, until things that were reminiscent of mom passed. So not only did you receive it from your mother, and also I'm wondering, do you have, did you have any other siblings or is just you and your father and your mother? It was just myself and my parents. So just a really tiny family and two adults kind of against one child. Okay. To your other question I have looked a lot into narcissism. Yes. And how it can be intergenerational. Yes. And there are several ways that a child can respond to a narcissistic parent. If there had been siblings, we probably would have had one sibling that was the golden child that did everything my mother wanted just to get that favor. And that person would perhaps turn up to be narcissistic as well. And then another child who may have been a scapegoat, and that child would have turned the total opposite and may have ended up in a relationship with an abuser and allow themselves to be abused. For me, I didn't go to either of those extremes. I was in relationships that were abusive and coercively controlling, but fortunately I was able to snap out of it at some point and and move on to safety. You know, as I look back now, there were definitely quite a few close calls. So you said that you were married. What was that relationship like? Was that abusive? Well, again, as a young teenage girl, all the relationships I got into were in some way abusive. I didn't recognize it then, but I certainly do recognize it now, you know, after years oh. of counseling and all kinds of work. So again, there were quite a few of the same things your daughter experienced in the dating relationship. My first husband was very controlling. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to leave me out of his sight. He wanted me to be with him all the time. He didn't like my friends. Hmm. He didn't like me going to school events. And again, what I didn't realize then at that age is that these things were abusive. I think back now, and there was one incident where I had wanted to go to an event at my college, and he didn't want me to go. And I remember being in my parents' living room, and he was so angry, and he grabbed my neck, and he started strangling me and shaking me that way. And again, as you can imagine, that part of me just checked out so that I wouldn't have to deal with it or see it. 
And that other part of me then went on. Of course, I didn't go to the dance. It was constantly like that. So again, Bill, the whole marriage and relationship was nine years long, but I really don't remember too much of any of the specifics. But what I do remember is I woke up one morning and it's like that was the real authentic me that said, what am I doing here? Who is this person beside me? I have to get out of here. I have to get out of here. So once that clicked in, I was out of there so quickly. Unbelievable. Of course, after I left, he tried all the manipulative things to get me back. The crying, saying he would go to counseling, calling my mom and dad and crying to them. And then also, you know, his family was phoning me saying, take, I should go back. No, I, I didn't ever take him back. But what happened then was the stalking started. What started was basically years and years of him just stalking me, you know, leaving flowers at my door or presents or being at my parents' house when I showed up. So it was really, 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 really a horrible, horrible experience. He's stalking you for years? Yeah. So again, it's it's such a bizarre situation. So when you were being stalked by him, how did you know you were stalked? I mean, was it like you were getting out of your car and you look over and he's in the car over there? Well, there were both subtle and not so subtle things. One of the things he did was very quickly establish a closer relationship with my parents. He would go to them and cry about how much he loved me and how much he wanted me back. And then my mom would call me and say, oh, he loves you so much. Why don't you have a baby? Why don't you go back? So he actually got in with my parents. One of the things that would happen, so remember, my mom is narcissistic. So she's only going to do things that serve her. So I would tell her, I don't want to see him. I don't want to hear about him. But she would tell me anyways. And then I would go to their place to visit them and he would show up and they'd be like, oh, guess who's here? So this went on. You're you're not going to believe this. We split up in 1985. He was still involved in my parents' lives until my mother died five years ago. Mm -hmm. I knew that he was stalking because my mother was just telling him everything I did. I would send my son there to visit my mom in the summer, and he would show up with his boys and swim in the pool. That is crazy. So again, Mm -hmm. you can't have a boundary with a narcissist because I told my mother, I don't want my son involved with this person. I don't want my children playing with him. But still, you know, I'd get the phone call from my son, mom, why do I have to go with this man and his kids? So again, you know, so there's that kind of abuse going on as well all these years. And then, of course, there was a final escalation around the time my mom died. But that's another story. And all I can say is that five years ago, I basically finally told him to get lost. And to this day, I haven't heard from him since. (laughs) Told him to get lost. I like that. That's, uh, That's strong. Yes. Yeah. But um, some of the ways, other ways he would stalk is he would park across the street from my parents' house when I was younger still, 
and he would watch to make sure I came home by myself. You know, he'd have his family members looking out for me. I remember once he, my girlfriend and I from college, we were going to go to a pub and I remember him following us in his car and then he was, he passed so that he would be right beside us, endangering all our lives. That was that part. The relationship, the next relationship was the one with my father's son. And I wrote about this for my blog, the posting was called everyone thought I was leading a charmed life and that's quite often the way these situations are seen people from the outside think oh they've got a beautiful home they've got good jobs they look so happy it must be wonderful and then often what's going on behind closed doors is not so wonderful at all again I didn't really realize that there was any abuse or manipulation going on for many years until I started to become very successful in my career. So our son was one years old. We had moved far away across the country from our families to just get away from all that toxicity. And my career just took off. I was starting a business. I was involved in some organizations. I had a TV show on one of the nonprofit networks. I was being interviewed for the paper all about my work as a business coach. The more successful I got, the stranger he started to act. His style was more passive aggressive than overtly aggressive. He would do things like when he was taking care of our son, I would come home from work and neither of them would be there. And I'd have no idea where they were. And then I'd find out that he was at a volunteer fire call and I wouldn't know where my son was. So I had to scramble to find out whose house he was at, that kind of thing. Or um, starting a big fight just before I had to go to an important meeting or presentation. The main thing he did was he was a volunteer firefighter and he put his big alarm right beside his bed. Yeah, that's all. Right? So you can hear the click, click, click. And yeah. when it goes off, yeah. it just really goes off. So I remember saying, could you please move it out into the hallway? And he's saying, no, I can't hear it. I would move it out. He would move it back in. I would move it out. He would back in. And on and on and on it went. I mean, such a silly thing, but it's a fight for control, right? Mm -hmm. And so things accelerated. Of course, I thought I could handle things. But then when it started to involve my son, there was one instance where we were having a fight, a verbal altercation. My son came and ran to me and I held him. We were sitting on the floor and my husband started punching holes in the wall and screaming and then he threw a glass at us that shattered and then he was trying to get my son out of my arms and the poor child is right in the middle of this again that's when something snapped for me and it was like I've got to get out of here I've got to get you know this is not safe for us in the usual way I asked him to leave because it's always best for the child to stay in their home right? Their familiar surroundings. Plus I was running my business out of my house. 
and he's, he, he refused to leave. And he said, well, why don't we just live separately in the house? And I just wasn't feeling safe doing that. Again, you know, I had some kind of a gut feeling that this violence was just going to accelerate, right? Mm -hmm. And so I found myself an office. I found a place for my son and me to move. My husband actually helped us move to this new place, and he seemed fine. But then he started to doing some stalking as well. He started behaving very strangely. Yes. And then about two weeks into the separation, he dropped my son off and he said he wanted to talk. So we started to talk and he became very agitated. And I said, listen, I'm not going to have this talk when our son is awake. Wanted to come back later. And so he came back after our son was in bed. And again, at first he tried to do the love bombing. I love you. Please come back. I'll go to counseling. You guys are everything to me, blah, blah, blah. And when I said no, he just turned just like that. And he started shouting again and name calling. And I said, listen, mm. I'm not taking this. Get out. I said, we can have another talk when you've calmed down, but you're not going to speak to me in my home like this. He went flying out. And the last thing he said was, you cold, unfeeling bitch. And even as he left, I had this feeling that, you know, he might take his life. Oh. You know how we sometimes get that intuition that something's going to happen. But then I thought, there's oh. nothing I can do. I've got to take care of myself and my son. Oh, yes, of course. In the morning, I got my son and myself up and ready. And we were driving to town. And I was supposed to stop at our house to pick something up. Yes. But again... That was one of those moments of grace where we're driving and I'm thinking, do I have time for this? No, I don't have time for this. Should I stop? Should I not? And then at the last minute, I just kept going. And you'll hear in a couple of minutes why that was such a good thing. So I drop my son off. I go to my office. I listen to my answering machine. I hear this garbled crying voice and I... I thought, you know, is this a crank call? So I played it again and discovered it was my husband crying, saying how much he loved us and that he was so sorry. And I just thought, oh, dear. And so I phoned the police and they said they had already been called to do a wellness check at the house. And they told me to stay where I was and to get a friend to come be with me and that they would get back to me. Again, waiting, and inside I knew what had happened. Again, that intuition is like, I know what happened. Oh. And then the police showed up and the victim services showed up and they told me that they had found my husband dead. Oh. He had taken his life. Wow. And it's one of the most memorable moments of my life because it seemed like everything stopped. Mm. And my head was totally clear. Mm. And it was like I had a decision to make, Bill. Do I let this ruin everything or do I keep on keeping on? Yes. And I decided to like, yes, you know, I'm just going to keep on keeping yes. on. And then everything sped up again. 
and then I checked out. That's when I started the long process of trying to understand what had happened and to understand how common this is, unfortunately, and how lucky my son and I were to be alive because... So what to check out in this case, what was that like? Well, this was a, a period of about, I'd probably say about six months where I remember only a couple of specific instances that part of me that ran things continued to plan a funeral, travel to Ontario for another funeral, just all the things I needed to do to take care of my son and my business and myself. So that was what the dissociating was. But the pain and the grief had to be set aside because I had to be there for my son. You know, since then, I have learned quite a few things. One of them being that the two weeks before and after an actual breakup or separation are the most dangerous for the woman and her children. I have learned quite often the man out of anger and rage where he may think of taking his own life, but he will kill the woman first and then chicken out on taking his own life. Sometimes the situation is that the man will kill the child to get back at the mother. And, you know, this is the part that really still triggers me after all these years. He had just dropped my son off a few hours before. When I thought of how it could have ended differently, that's just almost unimaginable. And then, you know, sometimes there'll be the whole femicide suicide where he kills the wife or girlfriend and then himself, or sometimes the perpetrators just wipe out the whole family. So even though it was horribly sad and it took a long time to deal with and heal from his suicide, it was a lesser of many evils, in my opinion. One of the things I've learned since is that there's a specific name for when a partner or ex-partner kills the woman. It's called femicide. I know that here on your podcast, you've talked about the word murder before. Femicide is a word that's used quite prevalently that is more targeted and more discerning about the particular type of death. So a femicide is basically when a woman is killed by her current or former partner. Bill, I'm just going to share a couple of statistics and a little bit more information about this topic of femicide. Women are more likely to be killed by partners or relatives. 87,000 women and girls were murdered around the world in 2017. 50,000 of them were murdered by an ex-partner or family member. So the latest figures released by the United Nations show that 137 women across the world are killed every day by a partner or member of their own family. A total of 50,000 women a year murdered by people they know and should be able to trust. What we're talking about today is a classification called intimate femicide, which is 
the killing of women by current or former partners or other family members. Then there are non-intimate femicide, the killing of women by someone without an intimate relationship with the victim. That may be something that's done by a serial killer motivated by hatred of women. Then you've probably heard of honor killings. Quite often, if a woman in some countries or faiths engages in premarital sex, it's judged as a violation of her family expectations. Then we have female infanticide, which is the intentional killing of female infants or fetuses because they're female. Then we have the dowry-related femicide, the killing of a woman by the groom's family because the money or property provided by her family is judged as inadequate. And then there's organized crime-related femicide, the killing of women associated with gangs, drug, and or human trafficking and guns. So it's really a huge, huge issue, Bill, that we find ourselves being a part of here. And I hope that gives you and the listeners a little bit more context. The other piece about the intimate femicide is that men kill women because they may be motivated by the socially constructed right to do so, their superiority over females, pleasure or sadistic desires towards women, or the assumption of ownership over women. So this ownership over women is such a key point as well. And, you know, unfortunately, when I think of your daughter, that's kind of the connection I make there. In many ways, the death of my husband was a cloud with a silver lining. Before this happened, I'd had a very successful career outwardly involved, you know, with television and radio and workshop giving and teaching and training. After this happened, I realized that I now had lived experience that I could use to help others. Thinking back on my own life, not just because I was dissociated, if there had been someone, one of my friends or a stranger or anyone who had noticed during all those many years with my first husband that something was wrong, I think it would have given me a little bit of a push or a wake-up call to actually look at what was happening. So I thought, no one did that for me, but I'd like to be the person that does something to do that for others. Many women stay in abusive relationships forever, or they try to leave many, many times and go back. That too could be a result of some dissociation on their part, which is something I've come to understand. So it's not just for everyone that the first time some abuse happens, they're out of there. They may not even notice it, or they may just check out because it's just too painful to look at. So the first thing I did after this was I took a course in life skills coach training. And what that taught me was how to facilitate groups with people who, as we say, are somewhat on the margins of society. So we worked with people from First Nations backgrounds where there's a, a very, very high rate of domestic violence 
and femicide, worked with people with disabilities, perhaps. Again, in the disabled community, women who are disabled are much, much higher likely to be sexually and physically and emotionally abused than not. Horrible. Um, We also worked with abuse survivors themselves and basically delivered workshops to help them with their communication skills and goal setting and self-confidence. And from there on, I actually, the next step for me was to start a school. So I started a private post-secondary where we started training people to be the trainers. So I had a variety of people in my first group. One of them, for example, worked for an organization that worked with prostitutes, Um, it was called Peers. And so one of the women was a former prostitute and she now wanted to help other women who were trying to get out of it. And so by taking our training, she was then able to work for that organization and do the frontline work. Again, we had some people from a First Nation who wanted to go back and work in their community people with disabilities, people with mental health issues, all types of things. So next thing you know, we've got graduates working on all these different communities throughout the greater Victoria, British Columbia, Canada area. That was really wonderful. And then for part of their training, I had to arrange practicums. So some of the our students went out to have their practicum in a jail setting, for example. Oh so again, one person's actions can really be, what is it, like a butterfly wing. So when I think back on if we help someone see that they're in an abusive situation, that too can then have a ripple effect on that person's whole life. So just touching people, you know, of all backgrounds and things, just a little bit. The When Dating Hurts podcast is supported by BlendJet. Big, bulky blenders are a real pain to use. But the BlendJet 2 blender makes blending a snap. I'm using mine several times a day. Convenience is the reason why. The BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It can fit into your cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. And BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. BlendJet lasts for 15 or more blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap, and you're good to go. With over 30-plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a BlendJet 2 to complement any style. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Seriously, what are you waiting for? No other blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Head to BlendJet.com and use the promo code WHENDATINGHURTS12 for your 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. That's BlendJet. 
And then from there, I went to start a organization that was funded by the government. And we helped people who were unemployed or disabled or on income assistance start cooperative businesses. And one of the ones I worked with was a group of young single moms. So it was really amazing. We'd meet every week and you know, these women were between 18 and 25, and we had their little kids crawling around as they learned life skills and business skills. And they ended up starting a cooperative thrift store with my facilitation support. It was for that particular piece of work that I was awarded a YWCA Woman of Distinction Award for my work to support other people to achieve their potential. That's great. So that was a really exciting thing. And then from there, I started to work with organizations that were directly involved in women's issues and domestic violence. So I did a lot of consulting work with transition house societies or women's centers and really just started to take a personal interest in the women that I came across, you know, in my regular life too. And it's been really interesting, Bill, as I'm sure you've noticed, the more that you're able to share your story with others, the more others are able to share their story with you. So again, I'm not a counselor, but I sure know where I can refer people. So quite often, I will meet a woman and just kind of get a vibe from her that she too has experienced some kind of abuse in her life. And as soon as I disclose something, then she's free to disclose too. And quite often some pretty amazing things can come out of that kind of a connection. And then that takes me now kind of to the most exciting career aspect of my life. So it turned out that when I had to leave the home with my son and to take my business, I was, I was fleeing abuse and it had always bothered me. Why did I have to leave? Why did I have to take my son and rearrange my whole life because he didn't want to leave the home. That's just not right. That's just not fair. And this was something that, you know, my friends and I would talk about all through our lives that it just makes no sense. The man's being rewarded for being an abuser by getting to stay in his house and not be inconvenienced. Whereas, you know, the women and the children are fleeing in the night to a shelter if they're lucky to get in where they're going to be re-traumatized because they're around other people who are traumatized so you know we'd kick back and forth and back and forth and about five years ago i was living in vienna austria close to where my relatives are i had started blogging about social justice issues in europe and one of the things of course i was interested in was what kind of interventions are being done in other countries that we could compare to what's being done in Canada and the United States. So someone introduced me to the Austrian intervention 
And basically, when I started to research that, it made so much sense. So what happens is, as you know, neighbors and friends can tell that there's abuse happening in a family or in a home. So if the woman herself is not ready or willing or able to make that call, the, um, the bystander, the concerned party can make that call for the police. The police are under a totally different system where when they arrive at a home and if they see that the woman is or has been physically or emotionally abused, they don't leave it up to her to decide whether she wants to press charges because obviously she's in a traumatized state and she can't be making decisions. So it's an automatic 14-day separation order. The man is removed. The women and the kids stay at home. The man is taken to kind of like a safe house where he can access counseling and support. And the woman and her children are supported to stay in the home, which sounds amazing. Sounds like the way it should be. And so again, it's not up to the woman to lay charges because quite often what happens is if the woman does decide to lay charges, then the man will come after her and try to punish her for that. So again, this is all standard procedure. And then after the two weeks, the woman can decide whether she'd like to have that protection order continued. And in the meantime, she has all kinds of counseling and financial aid available. If she does decide she'd rather go to a transition house, that's also an option. That really got me thinking. I did more research and I found other countries that were doing similar things like that. So here we are three years ago, COVID lockdown. I'm stuck on my island here with nothing much but an internet connection. And I just thought, well, you know, what am I going to do with my time? Let's see what I can do to make a difference. So I started doing some more blogging about domestic violence in Canada. And I really realized how different things are here and in the United States than in some other countries. And then I started talking to people, my friends and, you know, people I'd run across. They had the same reaction you did. Well, this is the way it should be. The women and kids should stay in their home and not face homelessness. And the man should be removed and, you know, appropriately dealt with for the abuse. So this really got me going. And so I decided that I was going to gather a few people and we were going to start a nonprofit society. We went through the incorporation process. We also applied for charitable status really early on. And that allows us to give income tax receipts to people who donate. So once we got all that out of the way, then we really started looking at what exactly do we want to focus on because it's such a huge field, right? And we can't do everything, but what one specific thing is it that we want to look at? What we decided was the intersection between the domestic violence, homelessness, and housing there's a huge percentage of homeless women who are actually fleeing domestic violence. There are homeless women and children 
who are fleeing domestic violence. So we thought if we could focus on that one small area and start to do some research into that and where are these women and families falling through the cracks? What kind of services and support are available to women? How do we get that information to the women? And then what can we do in our community to mitigate that homelessness and lack of housing? So we have just given our very first grant to an organization here on Salt Spring. We're working collaboratively on a project called the Safe at Home Project. And basically, the first part is we're reaching out to community partners, such as the police, the transition house, some of the healthcare providers, some of the counselors, and some of the women who've experienced abuse, and looking at the issue of if women are leaving, where are they going? Are they having to leave the island? Are they having to go back to the abuser because they have nowhere to go? Are they couch surfing with their children? Where exactly are these women going? And what can be done by the community to find housing for women? And then in the longer term, we want to look at legislation changes that would bring us much more in line with what's happening in Austria, where the woman wouldn't automatically have to flee for safety. The man would be removed so that she can be safe. So that kind of goes full circle for me, Bill, not knowing I was in an abusive relationship, to fleeing with my child, you know, becoming a young widow and having to raise a grieving child without a father, to doing lots of personal growth and counseling work to have the strength and courage to be able to start giving back, giving back one-on-one -on -one by just talking to people, being involved in other organizations that had the same kind of mission. And then now, as I'm in my early 60s now, this is kind of like a project that I would like to have go on in perpetuity where in the future, some legislative changes and changes will come about as a result of what, what my lived experience is. That's amazing. I just love everything that you're talking about. And you really did go from being on the receiving end of so many, from the time you were a child, I mean, so many things that aimed against you. If there are things you want to underscore, you know, your website other things that you're doing that you want them to participate in. I think you should make a pitch for that if you want I've to. I've talked about some pretty intense and perhaps triggering information today. And I know what often happens for me in these situations is that part of me is listening, but part of me is checked out. So I may come away and not fully remember what I've heard. I do write about many of these topics on our organizational website. It is amamorwomensfoundation.com. And I'm sure Bill can put that in the show notes. I've got a bunch of interesting blog posts for those who are interested in diving a little bit further into the femicide issue. I've got some book reviews about some really informative books. Why Does He Do That by Lindy Bancroft, 
where he talks about the many different types of abusers. I've got some personal stories, including my own, and just some more information about what we are planning to do as an organization. And I do extend the invitation if there's something I've said today that particularly resonates with you, any of the listeners, please reach out because although I do a lot of this high level work, most of the change comes when we connect with people one on one. I remember in one of Bill's episodes talking about, a, he was talking about a young woman that came up to him just before he was going to give a big speech. And this young woman said how much something he had said had really made an impact on her and helped her to see her situation differently and maybe to reach out for help and safely leave the relationship. So if you're feeling that I might be the person for that, I will have Bill leave my email address in the show notes as well. And yeah. My motto, I guess, is see something, say something, because we all see things. And by turning away or turning a blind eye or thinking it's not so bad or not wanting to get involved, things can often escalate. And then, you know, we end up with with a death. Bill, this has just been a very intense experience for me, too. As you've heard from my story, I do a lot of my work looking at others and what they've gone through and their lived experience and how to help them. But I'm actually feeling quite teary and and moved actually just talking this out to you because I know that you empathize and I believe you have the compassion for family members or women who are experiencing abuse And I mean, I've talked about this to many people, but just the fact that you're a man and that I'm able to trust you enough to be able to share so deeply, it's really quite wonderful. (laughs) Uh, That's really a gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. I do appreciate the fact that people trust me. And I was just talking with someone yesterday I was interviewing, and they were saying because of what happened in our family, but also what I've done with it, which is really the same with you, Romana, that you've taken tragedy and then used it, retooled it, used a lot of imagination, used a lot of determination to take it and turn it into something that could help an unlimited number of people. What I like so much about today is it's great to come in contact with someone like you who has done amazing things. I mean, you touched upon some of them, but you didn't touch upon all of them because I've seen your bio. It's truly unlimited. I mean, it's all, the only limit is your time, you know, your, your energy and your time to take it and run with it and make so many things out of it. And the need out there, the more I learn about this whole subject, the greater I, the more I understand the great need that is out there. I mean, there's so many people who are, who are being victimized all day long, all night long by people. I don't understand why people can be so cruel, but you don't have to be a victim forever. 
And I hope your work, my work, and those who are joined at the heart like we are can give the courage and the, and the knowledge and some direction to people so that they can get themselves out and be free and, and get their lives back and improve themselves So, and their children, as you were saying. Thank you so much for coming on with me today on the When Dating Hurts podcast and opening up about your life. I knew about a lot of the things you did, but I didn't know too much about your life. And I just really had to sit here and listen. You know, I just was taking it all in and my admiration for you kept soaring the whole time. So thank you so well, much. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure learning from you today and sharing with you and your listeners. And as a matter of fact, I have started working on a memoir and being on this podcast is part of that process because I really do need to talk about all these things and much more. So yes, there'll be that in the future. So all the best to you and I'm sure we'll be in touch. I have no doubt we'll be in touch. You know, I'm looking forward to the next part with you, Romana. Again, my admiration for you is just at the top. Thank you so much. This is great. I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play Survivor episodes above all others. They get caught up between the forces of good and evil, all the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence. We can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at BillMitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's BillMitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking, brought to you from Podcast One. Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words. Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know? We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked. So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast.